Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 254. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And here's the deal. Not going to dance around it, not going to do a real cutesy poo intro here, but a show that I think is important, a show that is timely, because with everything going on right now, the protests of the murder of George Floyd, we need to talk about it. And I thought, I have a platform, I have an audience, I have a megaphone, what can I do? And so what I did was I reached out to two former guests of mine. And basically what I said was, the conclusion I've arrived at is that the world doesn't need my white ass weighing in right now, but rather to hand the mic off to voices that need to be heard and or amplified, get out of the way and promote them. And I said to these two people, you have an open invitation on my show anytime you want. You can talk about anything you want. You can talk about it in any way you want. And additionally, there's no pressure here because I recognize this invite could be viewed as a way of forcing you into a spokesperson role that you didn't ask for, nor maybe do you even want. But I want to use what I have to contribute positively. They both responded to me. They both had very, very nice notes. One politely declined, and I said, that's perfectly fine. I don't take offense to that. Thank you for your continued engagement with me. The other initially declined and then said, you know what? I do have something to say. So let's talk about it. And that guest is Alan Brooks. I had Alan on the show as recently as last February, talking about his new graphic novel, Anguish Garden. And after initially resisting, he said, there's a bit of a challenge for me because although I engage with these topics in my art, I'm not really trying to become a spokesperson for them. I'm not an activist in the strictest sense of the word, and I know there are plenty of better informed people when it comes to speaking on these issues. But after considering, he said, you know what? I have some ideas on how I want to talk about this. So he joined me. We had a great conversation. We had it June 3rd, the afternoon of June 3rd. And I say that just so you know when it happened, because things are changing so much on a day-to-day basis. And on this show, we talk about ways that even if you're not down protesting, if these issues are important to you, if you are someone on Facebook or someone on Instagram or Twitter on any social platform saying, what do I do? How do I get involved? What are the things I can do to help? How can I change the world? The conversation that Alan and I have address those topics very directly. How do you have the conversations you need to have? How do you deal with something like white fragility? Seriously, it's amazing to me that you can say a phrase like Black Lives Matter and have that somehow be controversial. Of course, all lives matter. We all know that. But what we're trying to do is prevent more black people from getting killed in the street. So we talk about those issues here on this show. We also talk about things like how art can change people's minds, why art is so important over the long term of uprooting racism and getting rid of it from our society. And as intense as I may sound right now, Alan and I had an amazing conversation. He and I engage with ideas and with each other in a way where we know we have mutual respect we have mutual appreciation. We kind of come at them from the same angle. I'm not asking him to get on here and sermonize. It's a true exchange of ideas. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate his thoughtfulness, his approach, his engagement, his art. Now, there's a number of resources that he points to. 
There's a list of 75 things white people can do for racial justice. There's a list of 14 things you can do to take action if you wish to support protests in a peaceful way. There's a comic he wrote about Juneteenth. There's his series that runs in the Colorado Sun called What Did I Miss? that tackles these issues pretty directly, and he's linking to ones that address police brutality. Now, one note before you listen to this. Normally, when I do episodes, I lightly edit them. I just clean them up for your listening pleasure. I take out ums and uhs and long pauses or, you know, where someone stutters and says, let me start again. I try to make this sound as seamless as possible. In this case, just for the sake of what we're doing, I didn't edit this at all. I left it alone. I let it be. I take out one thing that Alan said. This is just for the sake of disclosure. He misspoke about one of the tactics that he said. He asked me, he said, I think I misstated that. It's factually incorrect. Would you please take it out? I did. Okay? That is the only edit that I have in this entire episode. And I tell you that because the first half of the show, uh, roughly the first third, we're trying to do it via Zoom. The connection is bad. It's It's really choppy. I beg you to stay with it because somewhere right around the 13 or 15 minute mark, I think, we switch to a phone call and it sounds much smoother. So just bear with me through that front technical part, and I promise the sound quality gets a lot better. But I also tell you, I didn't edit it except for that one thing. Now, this is normally where I do plugs, but for the sake of what we're doing, all I want you to do is go to the show notes available on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher, and check out the links that I provide that Alan provided me. That's a good place to start to engage with these issues. Or you can go to the John of All Trades blog. That's J-O-N of all trades dot U-S. You'll find that list there as well. So the blog, the show notes, those are both places where you can find a list of resources to get involved if you so choose. If these issues matter to you and you find yourself asking, what can I do? How can I help? Here's a great list. Here's a great way to get started. Now, this is not the end-all be-all conversation about this topic. Far from it. But I had to figure out where I wanted to get started, how I wanted to grapple with these issues, and I leaned on my past guests. Alan was nice enough to come back for the third time on this show, and I'm deeply grateful that he did. I value him as a person. I value him as a friend. I value him as a content creator, and I cannot say enough nice things about him. And our friendship and our collaboration has grown from there. So, Alan, thank you for being on the show. You will not find a formal intro at the back end of this. Not doing a bunch of plugs. Only the ones I talked about. Check out the show notes. Check out the blog piece. And click on those links that Alan was nice enough to provide. So, episode 254, I'm talking to Alan Brooks about largely the protests of the killing of George Floyd. What we can all do to get involved and make this world better in a way that we all hope. And that episode starts right now. So, Alan Brooks, you and I, I sent you a Facebook message just a couple of days ago because you were on my show twice. You've been on my show twice now. And a lot of your art addresses issues of racism and oppression and things of cultural importance. And so I reached out to you and said, given what we're doing and what's going on culturally with the George Floyd protests, is like, would you like to come on my show and talk about what's going on, how people can get involved? And what's important to note is 
I don't want you to feel like you're having to be a spokesperson for an entire group of people because you neither asked for that, All right. nor is that your responsibility. But given that your art tackles these subjects, I wanted to give you the opportunity to say, hey, I'm a white dude with a forum, with an audience, and I think the last thing the world needs right now is the opinion of some white dude about what's going on. So if you have things to say, you're welcome to come on. And to that, you responded, you said, sure, I'd be happy to come on. So Rodney Allen Brooks, I'm happy to have you on the show again. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. And thanks for engaging on this, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate you reaching out, John. It's just good to be, good to be back. Yeah, absolutely. I I always enjoy our conversations. I love any time we get to interact. I wish it were under better circumstances, but I appreciate your willingness to talk this out with me because I figure my role as someone with an audience, my responsibility is to hand the mic off to people whose voices either need amplification or, you know, just need to be emboldened. And I, I don't personally feel like, um, the world needs necessarily my opinion on the things going on. Uh, do you have reaction to that? Uh, I, <laughs> I do think it's, uh, I think it's important, right. To, to, to be reaching out to uh, people who are directly affected by the issue that we're trying to address. Um, uh, you know, I think that gives perspective and balance. So I am, I'm glad that you have done that. And I also, you know, I've had a number of people, uh, like white friends reaching out to me, um, about, well, I guess checking in if I'm okay about like, if I, if I can speak on their, whatever they're doing, you know, and, uh, the tricky thing about it is I don't want to be speak on something just because I'm black. I want to be clear about for myself of what things I have to say. Um, you know, there are people who are activists who are qualified to speak on uh, that man on the street protest level. Um, so I did try to think about what it is that I have to share in a time like this. And uh, thankfully, you know, I did come up with something <laughs> which uh which, you know, you agreed to and, and I, and I appreciate. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, for a lot of people, if they cannot be at the protest, if they, uh, if their jobs don't allow it or, uh, their situation with their houses or their children or they just feel like it's too much of a risk, um, what else can they be doing? And that's, that's kind of some of the stuff that, that, uh, you know, you and I talked about getting into here. Yeah, and I'm happy to, if you'd like me to, I'm happy to post the list that you sent to me via Facebook Messenger. I can make that part of the show notes, make that part of the companion blog piece. And one of the things I'm struck by is you have white friends reaching out to you that that's got to be both a blessing and a curse because, again, it, it it's almost unfairly reductive to say, hey, you're a black guy I know tell me how I can do better or tell me how I should feel about this or tell me your opinion on this. That's like a lot of pressure and not something you asked for. So um, when, when people reach out to you with that kind of thing, you know, what's, what's your kind of immediate reaction to it? 
Uh, well, it does end up being a lot of emotional work. So, uh, sometimes I don't respond for a few days, you know, sure. and then, uh, you know, I'm trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. So, uh, one of my, one of my best friends in Atlanta, uh, who's also black, he, uh, he sent me a exchange where a white woman who's on his friends list that they don't, they don't know each other. Um, you know, he's just in the film industry and they, I think they, and she wrote to him and it was, it was nice, but it was like, how are you doing? What can I do? And I thought, okay, well, you know, reaching out to a stranger and basically making him responsible for teaching you what to do is a, I, it's a tricky thing, right? Because I don't think she's ill-intentioned. I think she's actually asking what to do. But I also think, uh, laying that responsibility at his feet is a little, a little hard. Right. So I do think um, creating resources. There's this medium uh, article, medium.com, that's like uh, I think 75 things white people can do uh, in this kind of situation, which uh, I'll also send you so that you can put that in the notes if you like. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very practical stuff. And um, so yeah, it's just it's I guess it's conflicting emotions, right? Because it's nice. It's nice that people are like seeing, how are you doing, Alan? Like, that's really nice. But on the other hand, I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, I got 30 messages to respond to to make people feel better about something that is afflicting me, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and, and their feelings are, are not responsi- your responsibility. Their actions are not your responsibility. Like, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, and that's that's why... I, I was, I, I worked on the verbiage of what I sent to you, which is to say, if I have an audience in a forum that affords you one that, that you think has value that you want to speak on, you are welcome anytime to talk about anything you want. I don't necessarily, I, I don't want to place the burden on you to tell me what to do or how to act because you can Google that. Like, if, if you are engaged in any way online, these resources are not hard to find. Um, you know, you can find Killer Mike speaking in Atlanta beautifully and passionately. Um, and so I reached out to you and one other former guest whose name I, I won't talk about because that person declined to be on the show. They sent me a very, okay. a very nice note. Um, and they said, thank you for the opportunity. This is not what I want to do right now. And I said, that's right. fine. I totally respect that. Just know that the offer is always on the table because if, if I can do one thing, I can turn the mic over. I can, I can use the platform and the bullhorn that I have to amplify any voice that needs amplifying. And so right. that, that to me is, is kind of a key difference and something that I've personally struggled with. So, um, it, it's just something I wanted to get out in the open that, that we could talk about, at least in this forum. Right, right. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. I, I feel like, you know, there's, there's this uh, tricky balance for white people who are wanting to be uh, helpful and, and useful in changing things. And the balance is how much do I take action and how much do I step back and get space to black voices who want to, you know, uh, to lead the movement. And, uh, you know, I think because it's a tricky balance, 
it's difficult to get it right 100% of the time. And I think people should just be prepared for the idea that there will be some times that you will not get it right because it's just a journey. But uh, I think what's key is engaging and and um, taking actual steps. And uh, yeah, and I think if, if that's in your heart and that's the stuff that you want to do, then a lot of what we're going to be talking about here is going to be practical and useful too, you know? Right. So with regard to that list that you sent me, um, where would you like to get started in terms of talking about it? Um, because, I mean, my, my feed is filled with, myself included, so we're recording this on June 3rd, and I would say things are changing every single day. Um, but my show's profile picture, my own personal profile picture, are black squares for Blackout Tuesday. And... In, in some ways, I think that's a powerful message, but in others, if it's just that, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's an empty signal. Is, is that fair? If, if you're showing that, hey, I'm with you, that's valuable and that's useful, but if there's no action behind it, it's kind of an empty gesture. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, I mean, even with the black square, there was some sort of degree of controversy back and forth. But, you know, I think, um, really it's just like, what are we doing besides, you know, reposting memes, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah, figuring out like, what is it, what, what can you do besides repost memes, you know? So, um, that is, that is why I think it's important to give people different tools to engage with. Right. And you sent me a list of recommendations and I can pull them up on my phone. And is, is there a place you'd like to start? Yeah. Okay. You know, this is all, as, as we said before we start recording, this is new to me, but uh, I think it's like 14 things. And uh, the idea basically is like, like I said a little earlier, like not everybody is in a position to be standing in front of the Capitol all day. But the people are, you know, um, I'm, I'm thankful to them all, uh, that way, uh, as you know, whoever. Um, everybody who's able to show up and, and be a part of the protest, it has made some impact. I mean, uh, you know, the, the cop who murdered George Floyd, he, uh, he was first charged with third-degree murder. Uh, and that was the result of the protest, I say. And then the protest continued. Now he's been upgraded to, I think, second degree. And then the other three police officers who were there have now been charged. So, um, so there have definitely been results. And, um, and before we go into that list, I just want to say, I, you know, I think it's key to remember that this is one case and this is what it took to get even charges filed in one case. And that, that's not a charge is not a conviction, right? So we have to be vigilant until these people are convicted. Then there needs to be some um, changes in policy and legislation and the way that police are trained. Um, one of my best friends growing up, we used to rap together. He's a black cop in Atlanta. And uh, it's really interesting hearing things from both sides uh, for him, you know, being uh, black and Southern. Okay, so hold on. So, Alan, hold on. Before we do that, okay. I think the technology is inhibiting some of our message here. 
Um, I, I have another way yeah. of recording this. Um, and so if, if you want to talk via phone, um, that might be an, an easier way and, and we won't be inhibited by technology because I'm worried if people listen to this, it's, it's going to be too hard for them to listen to and the, the message is going to get lost in some of the, you know, some of the static. Right, right. Uh, what's your other way? So when we left off and we abandoned Zoom because there was, uh, there was issues with the recording, um, you were talking about your friend who was a cop in Atlanta. Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that. Okay. So he's somebody I grew up with. Uh, and I think just being Southern and black and being a, a police officer, he's a sheriff. You know, he has an interesting perspective. In fact, when I wrote uh, that first chapter of my graphic novel, The Burning Metronome, uh, four years ago now, that dealt with police brutality, I, I spoke with him about it um, because I really wanted to get, you know, what it was. So, you know, I'm saying this to say, like, I, I hear things from some police sides, and he himself, looking at these things, feels, um, overwhelmed. You know, he says that there's a lot lacking in how police are trained. I've uh, seen plenty of reports of um, how it takes longer to, to get a certification as a hairstylist than it does to be a police officer. Good Lord, really? Yeah, in, in many states. And that is, we're, we're putting life and death situations in the hands of people who have not been trained sufficiently. And then on top of that, the training that they do receive is shoot, center mass. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, I was talking with, uh, I was a lifeguard and uh, one of the managers of the lifeguard for the city of Atlanta was also a police officer. And he was saying, you know, when they go through that targeting range and, you know, we've all seen this in movies where, like, stuff jumps out at them and they're supposed to know what to shoot and what not to shoot. Right, sure. Yeah, all the stuff that they're supposed to not shoot is usually, like, uh, cutouts of white families. And the people they're supposed to shoot are black teenage boys with their hats backwards. Oh, jeez. So they get trained for that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, you, you get trained to see a, a particular subset of people as an enemy and, and you group them together very easily and whether or not that's intentional, maybe I, I, I can't discern the motives of the people who make this training course. Maybe right. it is, maybe it isn't, but the practical effect is that you become trained to see a certain group of people a, a certain way as an enemy and as someone to shoot. Yeah. And I, I'll share one more anecdote in that regard. Uh, so there was a, a friend of mine, here in Colorado, who uh, I knew before he ever went to police academy. And then he went, and he was, you know, it was like in bands and really kind of open and really nice, a nice guy, you know. Right. Uh, and he went through police academy, and for a while he was working at DIA. And one night I was on a flight. I was going to catch a, like, a, like a 6 a.m. flight or something like that. And I get off the train, and I see him. And I see him kind of like scanning the crowd. He looks directly at me. I wave at him, but he does not register it as me. 
uh, it seems that he registers as like black suspect number one. And so like I'm looking at another human being who's looking at me and I wave at him and he, he like grimaces at me. And then I say his name and then he's like, Oh, oh, Alan, Alan, hey. And it was such an embarrassing moment for him that, you know, he like really tried to laugh it off and walk me, like he walked with me to my gate and stuff like that. But I thought like, what, what happened? Like, you know, what did they do to him? Yeah, really? In between, you know, like when he began the academy and, you know, him now that he cannot even register me as just another human being. Because even if he didn't recognize me right away, just the fact that we were making eye contact and I waved at him, you know, you would think would be enough to make him be like, oh, this is the person saying hello to me. Yeah, just just to be neighborly. Like, I mean, yeah. just just as fellow citizens, as fellow people on this earth, you know, I I when I when I'm on the street, like because my daughters play out front in my house a lot. Uh, when people walk by, no matter who they are, you know, if if you give them a friendly wave, and they don't wave back or they give you a weird look, like that's off putting. Right. You know, you go, yeah. you go. We're all people here. Like we're just trying to make a human connection, especially given that this is all happening in quarantine. That's rarer than ever. Right. Yeah, and it wasn't like he was involved in anything. He was just walking around because he had time to walk with me to my gate. So, you know, I just think um, there there are bigger things that have to be addressed in this one case. Like, and that's kind of what we were saying before we got cut off on the other the call is that right. is that you know there's the protesting and and it's been great and we've gotten a lot you know like we've gotten the world has put pressure on this one police department. So that, uh, you know, the, the police are charged in the case. But the bigger issues are how police are trained and what the legislation is for, for brutality, you know. Right. Um, anyway, okay. Well, so this, uh, this list, I think, is 14 things. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, we'll just go through them. I don't know that there's much to comment on them, but I think it's useful to, to, to just talk to these people because... There is a way that you can feel um, overwhelmed and guilty if you can't make it downtown to protest, no matter what city you're in. Right. Uh, do you have any thoughts before we start? No, it's I, I. I will say, I. I think the guilt is real because you want, and and I. I will say for some people, there's like a dopamine rush of being part of a crowd like that and being part right. of, of what you feel like is a significant social movement. But that in a lot of ways is the catalyst, but there's so much hard and unglamorous work to be done beyond sort of the protest, because at some point the, the big protests right in front of the Capitol are going to end. Right. And, and how do we maintain the momentum of that? How do we ensure that, you know, once everyone gets that nice little dopamine hit, if, you know, if what they believe in is, hey, like, we need to change the system, we need to change legislation, we need to change the way cops are trained and, you know, de-escalation techniques, things like that, how do we ensure those things happen? Because they don't happen overnight. Right. And I, I think that is of particular value because it's easy to get lost in the flash of the immediacy of a protest. Is that fair to characterize it that way? 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously it's effective and it, and it does accomplish something, but it creates movement. But there are things that need to be done afterwards to carry the work forward to make sure that it wasn't all just for that moment. Because if it's all for that moment, then, you know, politicians, police unions, they can just wait it out. Like, they can charge these guys, but there will be no convictions which has happened over and over and over again. So many times. I mean, you think about a guy like George Zimmerman who mm-hmm. who murders Trayvon Martin and and walks away. And and yeah. in police departments as well. I mean, going back as far as Rodney King. Mm-hmm. We we saw that on video too and that was 28 years ago. Wow. And and you go, how can anyone look at that video and not think those cops used excessive force? Right. Um, and so the, the fact that the, the thing that's so mystifying to me too, Alan, is when you see a video like this and how, how are, how are cops still conducting themselves this way when literally everyone has a high quality recording device in their pocket? Yeah. I mean, it, it seems very clear that they are confident that there will be no repercussions because they usually are not. Right. They don't care if you video them. Right. No, because nothing happened. Right. So, yeah, how do we ensure the momentum lasts to institute real change when we've been stifled for so long as a society and stuck in this cycle where it happens again and again and again? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You've uh you've you've sent me a list um this uh I think it was shared by Mutiny Information Cafe. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's where I got it from. And I know that it's just kind of been bouncing around uh, the Internet. But I think that there's all kind of just practical things that you can do to support at least this protest stage, you know. Right, right. So uh, should we go through them? Should we name them? Or do you want to yeah. pick out a, uh, a few high-level things that, that really resonate with you? Yeah, that's probably, I mean, because you're, you're going to include it in the notes, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it'll be in the yeah. show notes. It'll be in the companion blog piece. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there are things of, of support, right? Like, uh, one that stands out to me is if you can't be at a protest offering to babysit for someone else who can't take their children down to the protest, uh, that's tremendously helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about uh, donating to bail funds, but also, like, uh, Donating medical supplies, writing the articles and blog posts, just things around support. You know, there are places that there's a church, a couple of churches downtown in Denver who are doing um, providing food for protesters and like water and a place to rest for a little while. Um, right. And so there, yeah. So you know, like if you can't be in the hot spot area, you can volunteer at the place that is providing food, or you can donate food. Uh, and then uh, I have a, a comic coming out this week for Colorado Sun where uh, I kind of talk about uh, white people being in the inbox of their black friends and uh, have the character sort of say, I wish they would do all, meaning uh, liberal white people, I wish they would do all the things that they do when they see somebody mistreat a dog. Oh, <laughs> you know? my, yeah. So which is like, you know, uh, Call the sheriff, call your congressman, you know, like get rules changed, report on it. Um, 
But those are all like really just practical things that you can do. Well, and what's, what's interesting to me is, you know, there's the, one of the, one of the most prominent sort of memes going around today is uh, about the Karens of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. And it seems like that type of energy could really be applied in a super positive direction like this, you know, like when people see a dog in a hot car, right? Um, I mean, how many think pieces and editorials and op-eds do you get about that type of thing? Right. And if I, I saw someone share something about, you know, if, if you are a liberal white lady and you see cops approaching a group of black protesters with ill intent in their eyes, you know, you can be calm. You can sort of use your, I want to speak to a manager voice. Right. And, you know, given that white women of the world have not, that they don't have the target on their back from police anyway. Right. Um, that, that say people of color do, you know, that, that can be used in a really positive direction. You see a middle-aged white lady staring daggers through you. You're going to stop and think about it. It's like, oh, she's going to talk to my manager. AKA right. your chief or your sergeant or whoever. Um, and so, I mean, that, that type of energy, I think, um, could be really useful. And one that I think probably appeals on a really intrinsic level to a certain type of white person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I've seen some really good stuff in some of the protests throughout the world where, um, when police arrive, uh, white people have made a point of standing in between uh, people of color and, and the police, uh, basically making sure that that the, the black people who are in the protest are not being snatched out of the crowd or singled out. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing, but I think it's um, using the system that gives you privilege to dismantle the privilege. Right? Because you know, like, you didn't necessarily ask for it, but if it's there, then, and you don't think it's right, then use it to dismantle it. Then use it as a tool for good. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me almost in a perverse way of the show Parks and Recreation, where mm-hmm. Ron Swanson is this staunch libertarian who hates government, and yet he works for the city parks department, and he says, Towards the end of it, he said, I've always enjoyed rotting and bleeding the beast from within. <laughs> there's there's a way that you can use all this privilege to sort of turn it on its head. Right. Uh, like, if it exists, use it as a tool for good. Yeah. Is it, it – in, in terms of you, I, I know when we talked, you mentioned that you know, you address these issues in your art, but you don't do it sort of with blunt force. Yeah. Um, you, you come at it from a little bit more oblique an angle and there's certainly value in that and, and changing long-term thinking. Is there ever temptation for you to be, uh, more direct? Like, does this change the way that you approach your art or is this sort of ingrained in the way that you experience the world? Um, so, you know, you, you understand your approach to your art um, and, and the value that that brings. Are you comfortable in that lane or do when, when things like this arise, do you feel compelled to change? 
Well, you know, it's a good question and uh, actually a perfect segue because I feel like um, when the 2016 election happened, a lot of friends were protesting immediately. Right. And and I had to really think about, like, is it silly to make art during this time? Do I just need to be out there? You know, like, it's, it's, am I being vain or is it vapid? Is there any value to creating art? especially uh, graphic novels and comics, which, you know, have just gotten respect in the last right. 10, 15, 20 years or whatever. But um, when you know, what I really thought about was for every revolution, art has fueled it. Like, people come together, they sing songs to motivate themselves. Um, they be, you know, I think about, like, uh, writers like James Baldwin, or um, just black writers and musicians from the period of the 40s to the 60s, how the art they created was instrumental in motivating people to make these changes. And it was uh, key in expressing their humanity to people who didn't really understand the things that they were going through, you know? Right. Um, and I realized that there's obviously a reason that dictators work so hard to censor us because it does inspire revolution. Yeah. That, I mean, it's like why Hitler's number two man was a propaganda man named, right. named Joseph Goebbels who created films and art and all in the image of serving this overall goal because that's how you touch people's hearts and minds. That's a great point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I really feel like um, it, it really like made it clear for me that there is a vital, a vital role that art has in, in making social change. That said, more specifically to your question about being more direct, uh, if I just have somebody like a character stand up and just say all the things I believe, then I might as well just stand up and say them myself. Like, I, you know, I might just might as well give a speech or preach a sermon. I think part of what art does is engage those topics in ways that people can digest them um, a little differently, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think anybody reaches the end of one of my stories and is unclear about what it's about. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even like the weekly comic that I do for the Colorado Sun, um, that one is, you know, it's just one off. So those do have to like, by definition, come quicker with what the point is. But I really work hard to make it so that it's not like I think I have all the answers because I don't. Um, it is about raising the correct questions so that people can ask themselves and kind of move towards being more compassionate, being more connected with the people around them, and figuring out what kind of action they can take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, sorry. Oh, what are you going No, no, no. Keep going. Sorry. Uh, I was gonna say, I think art is a really great and powerful way for taking something out of the context that it's in and allowing people to see it from a different perspective. Because, you know, I think part of how we all see the world is informed by our experiences and our emotions. But if you take it out of the context and you just give, like, the facts of what this thing is, then suddenly, without our emotions clouding it, we can be like, oh, that is wrong. 
you know. Right. Even things that we do, you know, like if it's, if we get to see it from a different perspective, you can go, oh, man, I did, why did I do that? Totally. You know? Yeah, it, it reminds me of why so many people see the X-Men as sort of a parable about uh, gay people. And, and the, right. and the struggles, of, and you could, you could use the X-Men to talk about civil rights. You do the X-Men to talk about gay rights. Right. Um, but outsiders who are crucified and dehumanized by the mainstream and, and saying, you know what? These people are a threat to your way of life. Right. And they have these powers. They are predators. They are. You know, they, they are dangerous. They will destroy you. They will destroy your family. And when you view it through that lens, you know, you go, first of all, you're thinking to yourself, well, the X-Men are just cool, right? right. I mean, Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops, like Beast. You go, man, these guys are awesome, right? And then you start thinking about it in a larger cultural context and you go, oh, okay. I sort of get the parallel there. And that, that, to your point, creates a paradigm shift in people's thinking. So I, I think you're right on the money in terms of the value that art has. It may not be sort of the direct action that we're seeing today. Right. But over a longer term, it contributes to an overall kind of cultural milieu wherein that type of thinking isn't allowed to persist in the way that it used to. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, also art is really um, powerful at taking something that is intangible and making it something that you can grasp, right? So, like, usually if I ask people what their favorite songs are, it's usually some song that put into words something that we didn't have a vocabulary for. You know, whether it's romantic feelings or feelings of um, isolation or, you know, whatever it is, like, when we hear that song and it says the things that we didn't know how to say, suddenly we're like empowered by that. We have this ability to now, um, grasp, like tackle with, you tackle this, this thing that seems to be hurting us because now it's been identified. Right. And I think that that is key in any kind of social changes. You know, like there was no word for microaggressions, but now that there is, we're like, Oh, that's what that is. You know, and uh, it makes it easier to be able to contend with it and the work to change it. Uh, and I think that's what art does for revolution. It takes these sort of unspoken things and makes them concrete so that people can carry it forward. And then, you know, like we need, we need the protests. We need the people who write blogs and we need all of these things working. And then we need everybody to vote. And, you know, run for office if you can. And work. just all the ways that people are engaging, they're vital for us to have the society that we want, you know? Yeah, and I, I think it's hard to one, – one thing that, that I'm really grappling with is mm -hmm. there's almost a – I mean, the, the way that you mentioned that, you know, a society that we all want, I don't think anyone un, – unless you are – just a real craven sociopath <laughs> would say that equality is a bad thing. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's some disagreement about how we get there. And the thing that I'm having the biggest struggle with is a concept that I did not hear named until I would say probably a year and a half ago. And that's white fragility. Oh yeah. And that to me is a, 
almost uh, thoroughly underestimated by white people just how easily their feelings get hurt Mm -hmm. by even a phrase like Black Lives Matter. Right. You say that and the immediate reaction is, well, are you saying other lives don't matter? And you're going, (laughs) how the fuck do you jump from saying Black Lives Matter when – You've you've got black folks black folks getting killed with impunity by cops, and right. for some of the reasons that we talked about, you know, being trained to see, you know, young black men as dangerous as predators, um, and you know, in in boiled down to its to its essence, you are demonstrating that their lives are lesser than. Mm-hmm. Now now, how can you? hear that argument and immediately go, are you saying my life doesn't matter? It's like, holy shit, get outside yourself for a second. <laughs> like, yeah. Christ almighty. Like, it, we're, we're trying to address a problem here and, and we're trying to give it a name and you immediately want to say, well, hey, it's not like that. Yeah. And it, that that is one thing that, that I keep running into from time to time with folks going, well, you know, it's not exactly like that. You know, I I believe in equality, but, you know, I think the Black Lives Matter phrase is divisive. And I think that's difficult to overcome. And I'm saying that as a white dude, you having experienced this, you know, I, I have not lived your life. I could never live your life. We could have gone to the same high school. We could have lived on the same street. But you and I would have never, ever interacted with the world in the exact same way. Right. And so I guess my question is, with a concept like white fragility, which I'm learning is extraordinarily powerful, uh-huh. um, you know, what, what in your estimation can be done to kind of overcome that? You know, that's tricky. I, I mean, obviously, that's a good question. I, I do feel like um, what I've been seeing particularly – in reaction to George Floyd is white people taking more of a responsibility for contending with other white people. Um, Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I feel like maybe last time I was on the show, you and I talked about the idea that, uh, that racism is a white problem. And if, you know, it's not like, like white racism against people of color and black people is a problem that, white people have to address just like sexism or rape culture is a male problem. It's not women's problem. Right. You know? And so if most men are the perpetrator of rape, uh, then it, it becomes important for men to hold other men accountable. And in that same way, I think when it comes to things like white fragility, it's one thing, for like a black person to say, man, y'all being real fragile right now. <laughs> and, you know, and it's another thing for a number of other white people to say, why are you making this about yourself right now? Yeah. Get the you fuck know? over yourself. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think just people need to hear from the group that they identify with sometimes. Uh, I think that shift to thinking like, okay, it's, important for men to address sexism and rape culture, et cetera. And it's important for white Americans to address racism because up to this point, you know, there've been, there've always been 
white voices who supported movements. You know, there were white people who were with the Black Panthers. There were white people who supported uh, Dr. King. But to see white people being like, all right, when it's time to get other white people in check, I'm on that. Right. You know, that's new, at least in, in my experience, that's new. And that is something that I think that, that I appreciate, you know. I And I think that's a really useful and valuable lane for white people, too. I mean, it, it's, it's one where, you know, it, some of these conversations, I, and, and I'm not proud to admit this, but need to happen in private almost. Yeah. Where, you know, it's like, Hey, you said this, or, you know, I, I saw you doing this and look, man, that's really, really not cool. Um, and, and here's, here's what that means. So, I mean, part of one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was like, let's hand the mic over. Like, let's, let's, let's hear from voices that we need to hear from. But the other part is, you know, how do you workshop solutions for when you and I are not engaged in a forum like this? And anyone who listens to it, I hope they take things away from it that are of value. Right. But how do you take that? into your life. Like here's a list of books that you should read, right? Here's a list of shows that you should watch. Something as simple as watching dear white people on Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how do you support black businesses? Um, but what are the conversations you're going to have with the folks that you interact with every day? And I, I think back to God, it was like seven years ago and I had a friend, and I, we may have even talked about this previously, but who was kind of annoyed that he couldn't call things gay anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. you just tell me about that. Right? Yeah. And so right. we're sitting by the pool, and I'm going, okay, well, this is kind of – like there's not a lot of upside to me doing this right now, but I think this is important uh, right. ultimately over the long term and having those kinds of uncomfortable conversations. So – like we need to hear black voices, but then carry that message to other white folks and say, Hey, here's what I've heard. And here's what you doing this actually does to this community. Mm. Um, I mean, as, as I see on my social media feeds all the time, it's like, you know, what can we do? How can we be helpful? I think that's a super easy one. I mean, not easy necessarily, given what we talked about with white fragility. But <laughs> well, I, I think the other thing too is to recognize. I'm, I, I'm like I said this before, but this is the thing I've just been saying uh, for a few years. But when it comes to anyism, racism, sexism, uh, ageism, ableism, whatever, it comes from either a failure or a choice to not see the humanity of the other group. Right. Right. And so for the people who have failed, then you can show them things. You know, like art will help them. Uh, these books might help them. They just haven't had a chance to really engage with the humanity of this other group. The people who have chosen, they made a decision. So, right. you know, you're not really going to reach them. But I feel like those people are in the minority. But they are affecting the, the conversation for people who have just failed to see humanity, you know. Right. And with that as like a sort of governing principle, I think when you're talking to somebody who has just failed to see the humanity, then you can have a humane conversation. Like it doesn't have to be like, you know, uh, fuck you. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. Are you fucking much, stupid? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. It can just be like, 
like like with your your friend who uh, was upset about not being able to say gay, you know, you had it 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 might have been awkward, but it wasn't like you attacked him. You weren't like we're never going to be friends again. You were able to talk about it, and and as I remember, the end of the story was that once he kind of saw that he kind of came around. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, no, uh, that, that's that's exactly right. And it was like, you know, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, and that's what I think. Like he just in that case he failed to see. And you know, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in Atlanta. I didn't know any gay people, and so I failed to see the humanity of that group. But but then. As I got older, I had more experiences and made friends who were part of the LGBT, you know, Q community. Uh, IA, I keep forgetting to add that. But I, I learned how to engage. And then I realized, okay, these things that I say have an effect on these people. Let me understand that better. Right. Um, you know, so I think when it comes to white fragility, you know, you get to decide the people that you're talking to. Is it the person who just doesn't really seem to understand it. And you, you know, you can have a pretty um, compassionate conversation with them. But if it's just like somebody who has just chosen, like, I've decided these are not people, you know. Right. If, and, if, you're, if you're talking to uh, Stephen Miller or, you know, right. or, you know, Richard Spencer or something. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have clearly and, made their choice. Right. And, that's the thing is, but the way that those people, like a Richard Spencer, for example, the reason he doesn't come out and say, I am a racist, is because he wants to be able to catch all the people who have just failed to see the humanity of the other group. Yeah. And so he makes it more palatable. And then he plays on their fears, you know, like, you know, like, we don't hate, but this is, um, we're just trying to protect you from these people who are trying to take everything from you. Yeah, or yeah, it's like um, I I don't have anything against gay people, but there's a biological imperative that I think right. needs to be upheld in order to maintain society. And you go, okay, this is all just coded horseshit, right? You know, and so decoding some of that is is really really challenging. Yeah, so. and it is a lot of emotional work, and it doesn't always go well. But if you're not doing it, and it means that the people who are victimized have to do it in addition to being victimized. Right. I remember I, I had a, I had a conversation one time with, um, I think I was talking to Daniel Ramos who heads up one Colorado. And I told him about when I was in high school and there were a number of, um, call them queer and gay identifying. And, they were sort of pushing me and teasing me like, Oh, you know, you're probably gay too. And so I went home mm-hmm. one night and I thought, wow, am I gay? Mm-hmm. Like, and all night I wrestled with that question and I turned it over in my mind and I thought about things I'm like, maybe I am gay. I don't know. And like, I fretted about it and I just, I sort of just not knowing was really disconcerting. Mm-hmm. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that, Hey, I don't get that same feeling in my stomach. Uh, about men, I haven't gotten that feeling about any man ever mm-hmm. that I get about women. And I go, okay, no, I'm straight. That makes sense. It's fine. And he said, it's interesting that you did that because that's not something straight people have to do a lot. Huh. Yet, every single gay person or bisexual person or trans person 
has done that probably at least a dozen times. Wow. Like had that conversation with themselves and had to do that hard level of self-assessment. Now, the reason I bring it up here is because I don't often have to think about my privilege in this world. You know, I, I don't have to think about my place. I am a white, straight, cisgendered American man, mm-hmm. right? This world was built entirely for me and, you know, by people who looked like me. So mm-hmm. I can coast through this world a lot of in a lot of ways without ever having to think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Yet I would say every person of color has to wrestle with, the, their place in the world, the way they perceive their place in the world, and the way they perceive others to perceive their place in the world. Is that fair? Yeah. And it made me think about uh, when uh, lockdown started for the pandemic and we had to start wearing masks. Um, there was a, a Washington Times article about security guards pulling guns on black men who just had on a mask, like at a Walmart. Oh, Jesus, right. And then um, they interviewed, like, black engineers and doctors and stuff like that, and they all talked about how they they pick, like, quote-unquote non-threatening colors, like, you know, pinks and baby blues sure. and stuff like that, just because they have... So not only did they have to think about surviving the pandemic, but they had to think about what threatening police off, like, what would make them less threatening to a, to a security guard or a police officer. And that's the thing is that just your existence somehow, just your existence, doesn't matter who you are internally. You could be a poet. You could be a pacifist. doesn't matter. If you are black and the right white person sees you and decides they're afraid, that's all the justification they typically need. Right, like that chick in Central Park. Yeah, yeah. Where um, the guy is bird watching and asks her to put the dog on the leash, mm-hmm. and she calls the cops on him and says, "You know, I'm going to say that they're threatening me." And you go, right. "Oh my god, she knows exactly what that means. Like that is fucked up." Yeah, and she knew the camera was on her. Like you mentioned earlier with the cops, she knew. She didn't care. Yeah, she is so used to no repercussions. You know. Do you feel, Alan, and it? I mean, this this question's a little bit on the spot, but do you feel that the tide is turning, or um, have you seen this enough times to where you're skeptical enough about the tide turning from either one event or a series of events? That's hard to say. I mean, I feel like, I mean, you just mentioned Rodney King, right? And right, yeah. Like, doesn't feel like much has changed since then. Like. It is wonderful that the world is protesting about George Floyd. Like, it really is. This stuff happens so often. I don't even know why that's the one. That's the one that made people protest. But I'm glad they are. Yeah. But the, but the real change is going to come from, like, the protest moves the needle a little bit. And so it's necessary. It's definitely necessary. But the real change is going to come from legislation and changing how police are trained. Yeah. Like, that's really, you know, what's going to do it. Because right now, the training isn't very much. Uh, I went to Europe in 2016, and I met a, um, 
a German cop on a plane, and he uh, he's a police officer in Berlin. And he and I talked about American policing versus German policing. And he said that they're trained for maybe three years. And um, they're trained to, to, to go to like maybe four options before they reach for their gun. Wow. And I don't think America, like American police are clearly not trained to do other things before they, because they pull their guns out all the time. You know? Yeah. I mean, Orlando Castile. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, like, so this stuff happens so often. And so, you know, for me, the, the big change is that the world, the world has focused on this one death. And I really do hope that people are mobilizing and that they show up to vote, you know, and uh, I think today the Colorado Democrats introduced a bill um, trying to revise legislation on police brutality. And so, you know, when it's time to vote, hopefully we can support that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, and, and it reminds me of this too. It, you know, talking about white people calling out other bad white behavior. Mm-hmm. To any cops who listen to this episode, you know who the racist shitbags are in your unit. Yeah. Right? You know who the bad actors are because they're not hard to find. Right. And I, I think you have a gut level sense of who those folks are. How do you take action? When things like this are going down and you, you've got to know who's getting excited to go out and crack some heads or to mace some people or to, you know, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that change also has to come from within police departments and for lack of a better term, policing themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because when it comes to this stuff, I, often we'll see individual police officers speaking against it. Right. Uh, yeah, but, but not systemically. Right. I almost never see police unions condemning it. They, they Police unions typically are vocal, the most vocal, and they're speaking, you know, for, uh, you know, for all cops in, in many ways because they're the union. And they almost always, no matter how egregious it is, Back the police that are back, back the cops who have murdered somebody. Right. But then, you know, for the cops who do speak up, there are like, you know, they get fired, they get attacked, you know, they have all of these things. So it really is like a hard and deep problem that has to be addressed at the organizational level. Right. It's, it's almost like an honor among thieves kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know that, that that talking point that uh, I don't know Fox News and other places like to use that like there's just a few bad, bad apples, but you you remember that whole expression is a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch. Yeah, and, and they always leave that part off. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, which is weird. That cliche has gotten shortened over the years. Yeah, which yeah is is bizarre to me, but um, I I suppose is what it is. But yeah, no, I think it's important to. To remember the entirety of that phrase. Yep. Yeah, because I think if people are focused on the whole phrase, then they're like, oh, so we need to take some action to get these bad apples out. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's um, let's ensure the integrity of our bunch here, mm-hmm. and you know, let's let's do the work that's necessary. And it's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always comfortable. Um, but if if we want the world that that we say we want, it's very necessary. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I think uh, I think we need to wrap up. I don't want to cut this off, but. Um, I do want to give you the opportunity. Um, this is normally where we do plugs, but yeah. um, if if there's anything else you want to say, anything you any resources you want to point us to, um, the the floor is yours to uh, to conclude things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I know that a lot of people are posting resources, so I'm really glad for anybody who's listening to this. Uh, I hope you do check out the resources that are posted in the notes and, and John's uh, blog. Uh, today, the Pop Culture Classroom, who puts on Denver Pop Culture Con, uh, I wrote a comic for them maybe six months ago, which was for Juneteenth, and it was, I uh, planning to put it out on Juneteenth, but it's about the, uh, the history, um, of that holiday. And they put it out today, a couple weeks early, um, just to sort of create more awareness. And just very quickly for anybody who's not aware of the history of Juneteenth, when slavery was abolished, uh, they did not tell black people in Texas for two years. Jesus. So they basically tricked them into remaining slaves for those two years. Uh, and then eventually they were told, and the day that kind of it was announced was uh, June 19th, which is why they call it Juneteenth. And, and so that's what the celebration is about, is those people getting their freedom after being lied to about it. Um, so, you know, you can see how that's related to all that's going on. I mean, this is very much in the history of this country that feeds into what it is that we're protesting now. That comic is free on uh, popcultureclassroom.org, um, or you can go to their Facebook feed and check it out. And uh, I think I'll be reposting um, some of the What I Miss comics that I do for the Colorado Sun that deal with police brutality. So if you want to go to What I what I Miss, um That'll be on Facebook, and uh, also you can see it on the ColoradoSun.com. But I really just encourage everybody to find a way to engage. You know, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be uh, guilty about the things that you can't do. Just find the things that you can do and do those things, because if we're all doing something, then I think, you know, we're going to move forward as a society. I hope so. Um, And I I hope this conversation – is is valuable for anyone who listens to it. I hope it's but it's but one of many steps toward creating a world that is better and part of that is listening, part of that is acting, and part of that is doing better. And so to that end, um I'm not even going to do like a, a formal outro the normal way I do it with all the plugs, you know, like visit me on yeah. Facebook and all that shit. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. And all I'll say, Alan, is that I deeply appreciate your time. I appreciate you being willing to engage with me on this. Um, I know I, in some ways I, I'm drafting you into a spokesman role that you neither asked for, um, (laughs) nor, you know, well, basically that you didn't ask for, Yeah. but, um, 
given that you've been on my show before, given that you engage with these topics in your art, um, I thought I'd make the invitation and I'm incredibly honored that you accepted it. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you making the invitation and being thoughtful about how you made it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, take care of yourself, Alan. And, uh, I can't wait till our paths cross again. And I hope it's under happier circumstances. Likewise.